Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 139. So if you have a copy of God's Word, may you please turn there to Psalm 139. If you have a copy of the Black Church Bible, that's page 489. give you a moment to turn there. Psalm 139. We'll be reading the entire psalm. This is what Holy Scripture says. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say... Surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you have formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Back in September, there was an enormous fire in Boulder, Colorado. 
many houses were destroyed. There was also an 80-unit condominium building that caught a fire. It was the middle of the night, so firemen and police officers were banging on the doors, telling people to get out. One poor man uh, heard the news too late, tried to exit. The building was completely in flames behind him. He ended up on his third-story balcony. And he's calling for help. There's, there's no one there but one police officer and one fireman, and they don't have a ladder. They don't have anything. And so they look at the guy, and they said, jump. And they held out their arms, and they caught him. <laughs> and he was fine. And he was happy. <laughs> Delighting, one might say. <laughs> that he had been provided a rescue. Would you jump into those arms from a third-story balcony? Oltoff's saying no, and I'm thinking, I don't think I'd try to catch you either. (laughs) (laughs) Would you act so decisively to save yourself? He's got flames licking at his back. I think the decision was kind of easy for him. There was nowhere else to go. We're continuing our series on delighting in God, which is uh, one of the things we hope is the reason we're together, because we're trying to encourage one another to delight in God, to what? The glory of God, for what? The good of all people, the good of everybody. The happier you are in God, the more glory you bring Him, and the more good you will do in this world. Uh, We looked at Psalm 31, tried to answer the question, how do you delight in God when life is hard? And Psalm 31 gave us some good direction. We looked at Philippians chapter 4 and saw how delighting in God is what leads to contentment in life. If you're always scurrying to try and feel content, you'll never find it apart from finding your true delight in the Lord. Uh, Pastor Steve took us to Psalm 84 to show us that real delight in God results in sort of this godly homesickness where we're always yearning for something yet to come. That's a part of delighting in the Lord. And when Pastor Josh Tong was visiting with us, he took us to Hebrews chapter 3 and said, you'll never delight in God if you've got a hard, unbelieving heart. This morning, I want to think more directly about how to delight in God, what to positively do in order to delight in Him. And I assume that all of us would be agreeing that Reading your Bible, praying, fellowshipping with God's people, these are essential to delighting in God. And if you've shared the gospel with somebody recently, then you'll know this as well, elevates your own personal delight in the Lord. But you and I live under this constant threat, you see it all through your Bible, we live under this constant threat of doing outward things that don't match the inner reality. We call this hypocrisy, or we got all kinds of words for that, going through the motions. Sometimes we say, I'm feeling spiritually dry. And so we recognize that those outward actions of reading a Bible, of praying, of being with God's people, of sharing our faith, these outward actions in and of themselves are not sufficient in and of themselves to to, to get us to delight in God personally. 
I mean, total unbelievers can fake these things, right? I mean, the, Jesus told us that. There'd be people around us that, that trick us. They look like they're Christians. They're doing all the outward Christian things. But at some point in their life, they turn away from God, thus showing us they were never truly born again. And, and we're all kind of like, wow, didn't see that coming, which means we could trick each other all the time. We can even trick ourselves. So I think there are some foundational things that have to be in place in order for you to delight in God. And I don't wanna just assume, like when we get into some of these other things about contentment or, or Psalm 31, how to delight in God when life is hard, I don't, I don't wanna just assume the, that everybody understands what those foundational things are. I think they warrant some attention. So that's what this sermon is about. Uh, it, it would be a little bit like, uh, if we did this whole series and never talked about this, it'd be a little bit like you giving your kid a pair of shoes but never teaching them how to tie their laces. Now, what good is that? The shoes are gonna keep falling off, aren't they? And so in this sermon, I wanna back us way up to three foundational commitments that have got to be in place so that you can exercise the commands of Hebrews 3, Philippians 4, uh, Psalm 31. And these are very personal convictions that have to be lived out in real time between you and God if you're gonna really treasure Christ. And I'll give each one of them a single word title. Here they are. Number one, honesty. Number two, death. Number three, contact. I'm going to preach this sermon a little bit differently than the others. I'm not going to just zoom in on one text in particular. I'm going to zoom out and take you to multiple texts in your Bible. I think most of the references are there in your song sheet if you want to jot them down or take note of them. Here's the first thing, honesty. And I think it's the most important one. You cannot delight in God if you're being dishonest with God. You, can't, you just can't. You can't delight in God if you're being dishonest with God. One of the, I mean, we all make this mistake. We think we can deceive or trick Almighty God. For example, we may pray something, we're in, this, we're in this really thick trial, and we say, Lord, please be glorified in my trial, but what's raging in our heart is actually, I hate this, and you're making a major mistake. So our heart hasn't exactly got to a place where it is being honest with that prayer. Now, I'm all for doing what is right and hoping that the heart will fall in behind, kind of like the caboose to the train, the train of obedience, your heart's the caboose, it'll follow in behind. And yet, if that's all you ever do is pray one way when you're thinking another way, that's a different kind of problem, right? Solomon said, Proverbs 28, verse 9, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, now hearing here means not just listening to somebody say it, it means, it means hearing the actual words but then doing it, like be a true listener. So if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. That means that if you're living dishonestly before God, he's not listening to your prayers. Much like he said, uh, Peter said to husbands, if you're not living with your wife in an understanding way, then I'm ignoring your prayers, God says. I'm not gonna listen to your prayers. You gotta deal with the relationship. You gotta get some honesty here. So at the heart of, of this sort of 
action of getting the heart to delight in God is this need for honesty, this need for real integrity and an openness before God. There's, there's no more hiding between you and God. Really believing that, that He's there, that He hears, that He's real. Now, now, the fact that He's there, that He's real, that He's true, that's a fact whether you feel it or not. And so, uh, Patrick read for us from Psalm 139. If you have your Bible open there, just look there again for a moment. Psalm 139, verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, O Lord, you know it altogether. This is poetic language where David, the psalmist, is telling us everything you do, everything you do, everything you say, even before you say it, is known to God, all of it. And he can see all these inward thoughts and motivations, verse 13, uh, for you formed my inward parts. That's talking about the inner person, the soul, the spirit, the heart, whatever language you want to use there. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God never squints. Even the darkness, verse 12, is not dark to you. It's not like when you, you know, sneak off into the corner somewhere in the middle of the night and you're doing your thing that God doesn't see. It's like bright daylight to him. And this leads David to a kind of surrender, really, when he prays. Verse 23 Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see, see, examine. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, there's a kind of desperation to David's prayer. He's basically saying to God, upon my consideration, I have realized there is no point trying to hide from you. You see everything there is about me. In fact, you see me better than I see me, so please look at me, and would you be so kind as to tell me what you see? Jeremiah understood the same thing, and when he prophesied, he said this, Jeremiah 17, 9, you might be familiar with this verse, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But the very next verse answers that question. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. And what that means is, that even at your very, very, very best, your most authentic and honest self, you barely know who you are. So there ought to be some of that Davidic desperation in you that is in Psalm 139, a kind of, I don't know, honest resignation that looks to God and says, you know what, you know it all. You know everything about me. You know me better than I know me. So there's no point playing games with you or trying to trick you because you see it all. You know it all. Now, that's not just something to blow past. Listen to what God says about this. Uh, He sees all that you do, even when you're alone or in the dark. So Psalm 33, verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven... Just listen for the word all. He sees all 
the children of men. From where he sits enthroned, so he looked out, from where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all and observes all their deeds. That's comprehensive language. He sees all the people in all the places, all the time, and all that they do. Proverbs 15.3, if you got kids, you might have made them memorize this one. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. If you have kids and you haven't made them memorize that one, you might want to think about it. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Job asks the question, does he not see my ways and number all my steps? To which Elihu, the young godly Elihu, answers the question, for his eyes are on the ways of a man and he sees all his steps. There's no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. There's nowhere to hide from God. Not only that, he understands all the mixed motives behind your actions. That's a primary way, by the way, that you're different from God. You don't fully understand your own motivations let alone the motivations of other people. Remember when uh, the Lord said to Samuel, as he's going to go and find the new king to replace Saul, so he's go to Jesse's house. He's got lots of boys. And they just kind of parade, parade all the men in front of him. Who's he going to pick? And this is what the Lord says to Samuel. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees, man looks on the what? On the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the what? On the heart. At our best, we're window shoppers when it comes to the motivations of other people. If I see a suit in a store window or on a web page, and I, I might think it could be good or it might be bad, but I, I can't really examine it. I can't examine the material, the stitching, the workmanship. But that's precisely what God does all the time. He looks on the heart. That translation is perhaps a little soft because the word means he looks and understands. He, he looks and knows. He spies out what's really going on in that inner person, where your real loyalties lie, what, what you really love, regardless of how you might appear in the store window. And God made this clear very early on in his book, in the Bible, when he's explaining to Noah his rationale, his explanation why I'm going to send a flood to judge the whole earth. He says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart. That's the level to which God sees the subtle impulses and motives behind every look, every expression, every word, every action. God sees all of that. To stretch our analogy too far, we might say he understands and, and sees and knows the, the, cotton, the, the cotton plant that your suit was made out of. And that's why he's able to evaluate you with perfect clarity on the day of judgment. Hebrews 4, verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all 
are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There is nothing you have done in your life. There is no word you have spoken. There is no thought you have had that God does not know. Why would you try and deceive him? Why would you try and hide from him? But the good news for those of us who love God is that God is pleased to deal with us on this heart level. He's interested in a heart-to-heart relationship, as it were. Kids, do you ever do things in secret? Do you ever do things in secret? Do you ever, like, sneak around and try to scare your mom? Or do you ever, like, make a secret little fort in your room? Or do you write a secret little play that you're going to do with your siblings? I mean, you've got secrets. Well, let me take you to a place where God talks about things Christians can do in secret. Three times when Jesus was preaching, in one sermon, he talked about the Father who sees in secret. Listen to these words. And as you, as you listen to them, think about this whole idea of being honest before God, okay? Matthew 6, 3. When you give to the needy, do not, left, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew 6, 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew 6, 17, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Good, external, religious actions can be done secretly because God sees them all. And there's a kind of appreciation that God has for those who give and pray and fast without telling anybody about it, but just making it between them and God. They're doing it as unto the Lord. But don't forget If God sees your secret prayers, he also sees your secret lusts. If God sees your secret fasts, he also sees your secret binges. If he sees your secret charity, he also sees your secret debt. It goes both ways. He sees all of you. And as such, it makes no sense for you and for me to try and hide things from God. It seems to me that the one thing that really irks God, if I could put it that way, is hypocrisy. You look at the life of Jesus, he's got so much patience for, for adulterers, and he's got patience for idolaters, he's got patience for unbelievers, he's got patience for all kinds of people, but, but where he's very sharp and direct is with religious hypocrites. Acting one way while what's true about you or the desires of your heart 
is something entirely different. The, th- the thing that happened in the Garden of Eden right after Adam sinned happens every day for us. When we sin, what do we experience right away? Shame. And shame leads to hiding, self-protection, covering up, self-projection, making yourself appear one way when you're not, and blame-shifting, self-deflection. It was her fault. Self-protection, self-projection, self-deflection, all of that is deception, hypocrisy, and dishonesty. And God expects and God respects honesty. Just think for a moment about your own friendships. Do you want to hang out with people who consistently deceive you? Do you want to hang out with people who put on airs, who act like they're something different than they are, who project something of themselves that is not true, that blame everybody else for their faults? How do you feel when you find out this person that you're friends with is not what they presented themselves to be when some great exposure comes and you find out they're not who you thought they were? All of us fail at this, friends, except for our Lord Jesus, of whom Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, verse 9, there was no deceit found in his mouth. No deceit. Jesus is the exemplar par excellence when it comes to honesty. He was without guilt. He was without deceit. His words perfectly matched his heart. He was all aligned. He was always truthful. And not just because he is God, if we can say it like this, but because his his life, his inner person, had not been all twisted and bent by sin like you and me. And so he lived this, this perfect sinless life. And that's great news for us because We needed, to put it metaphorically, we needed a spotless lamb to be our sacrifice. Not a lamb with a couple, you know, uh, problems, but we needed a spotless lamb to be the sacrifice for our sin. And that's exactly what he was. So his work on the cross of substituting himself for us, it was accepted by the Father because he had no sins. None. Never sinned with his thoughts, never sinned with his words, never sinned in his actions. None. And now, when, when, when you and I repent from our sins and we put our trust in Jesus to save us from those sins, we put our trust in the work that he did on that cross, what does he do? He rescues us from our sins and he empowers us by his Holy Spirit to live a different kind of life. That's why you find so often in your Bible, New Testament, Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, do not lie to one another. Because when you're honest before God, you can finally be honest with other people. <laughs> honesty with one another begins with honesty before God. How about you? Have you been honest with God? Have you? I, I hope I know it's kind of obvious there's no point being dishonest with God. <laughs> I've been trying to stack up all the truth for you that, so you can, you can be convinced there's nowhere to run, there's nowhere to hide. He sees, he knows, he understands. Have you been honest with him? Not, not only does he see and, and know everything you do and say and think, 
He knows all the motivations in your heart behind that. That should probably scare you a little bit. It probably explains why the most consistent reaction of people who actually had a face-to-face encounter with God, there's not been many of them, what's the one thing they all do? They fall down flat on their faces. Uh, Here's Daniel, chapter 10, verse 9. He sees an angel, just an angel. It's not even God. (laughs) I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. That means I passed out. (laughs) I I couldn't take it. Or how about Moses when he goes to the burning bush, the bush that is on fire but not being consumed because God is in the midst of that bush and God speaks. And when God speaks, says, this is uh, Exodus 3, 6, Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. There are a lot more examples of this in the Bible. But if you think you've met God or you've had some kind of face-to-face with God and your reaction was to keep shaving or to go for a pleasant little walk in the woods, that weren't God. (laughs) I don't know who that was or what that was, but it weren't God. You meet with the Lord, you'll be convicted of your sins, you'll know you need a savior. I guess that means there should be some fairly consistent flat on your faceness in our lives as Christians. Not necessarily physically, but at least Metaphorically. I think the more honest you are with him, the more this will be. Years ago, when I was in college, uh, I, I recall I came up with this phrase, me and a couple of friends, where we call it reality flirts. That was our little phrase. Where, where you just felt like for a moment, the doors of heaven opened. You didn't see anything. It wasn't a vision or anything. But just where just the weight of glory seemed to rest upon you. And it always seems so fleeting just a little flirt of reality, what it really is. There's a real God out there, friends. And to delight in him means to keep seeking him, keep looking to him, being honest with him, coming clean with him. First word is honesty. Second word is death. We listened to these words from Peter on Good Friday, if you were here. Peter said to Jesus, this is right before the betrayal and crucifixion, said to Jesus, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Peter promised that he would die to self in order to not deny Jesus. He didn't didn't understand that a man has to deny himself in order to truly die for Jesus. So it's two kinds of death that I'm thinking about here. The first is death to self. Do you remember when Jesus said this? This is Luke 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, pretend Jesus is saying this to you right now. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is one of the very surprising things about God's ways. The way to life with God is the path of self-death. The way to intimacy with God is the road of self-denial. Now, I assume this text is well known in our church, but listen to it with some fresh ears. Jesus said, any one of you who does not renounce 
All that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, you can do this in a couple of ways. You could walk around your house this afternoon and just look at the stuff you love and in your hearts say, you know what, I renounce that. Like, I love Jesus more than that. I love Jesus more than this new toy I just bought yesterday or this car or this whatever. I, I love Jesus more. And that's, that's the spirit of this. But I think there's something a little bit deeper going on here. Jesus makes these very strong comparative statements. And, and this, in essence, what he's saying is, look, the means to delighting in me is by getting yourself out of the way. It's denying yourself. How do you deny yourself? You do this by renouncing yourself, rejecting your desires, relinquishing your agenda, removing your idols, replacing your priorities. Your you dies and Christ becomes most important of all. Have you ever had a trusted friend, a good friend, but the relationship's a little tough because all he ever talks about is himself? <laughs> I mean, you may love him, but the relationship is a little bit tiring. I don't think God gets tired, but I wonder if he ever feels a little bit of like, <laughs> you again. <laughs> Self-denial is not only an outward restriction of our desires or our preferences. Self-denial begins with this kind of inward self-control that looks to God, not just for what God's going to give you, but for who God is. It, it's the rejection of self and the embracing of God himself. It's the kind of self-awareness that says, not only does this perfect being know everything about me, he's also willing to let me into his presence, his life. Why on earth do I want to talk about me? <laughs> I'm not saying you can never talk to God about yourself, but to truly delight in God is to enjoy God for who he is. Which means not only must there be self-death, there must be some sin death as well, death to sin. You remember John Owen's classic statement, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's new for you, I'm gonna repeat it because it's worth knowing. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. The moment you take your foot off the gas pedal, it's coming right back at you. That was one of his ways of summarizing the teaching in Romans chapter 8. I'll read from verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, you put to death, you mortify, you kill, you put to death the deeds of the body, your sins, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Here's a little more John Owen, modernized by Paul Martin. <laughs> Don't let a man think he is making any progress in holiness if he is not walking over the bellies of his lusts. He who is not killing sin along his way is not taking any steps toward his journey's end. He who finds no opposition from his sins is at peace with them and not killing them. Sins are not like traffic on your commute, annoying but inevitable. Sins are like a murderer creeping into your house coming after your family. You've got to do all you can to kill him first. 
Otherwise, you will have no true fellowship with God, no way to delight in God. Psalm 66, verse 18, listen to it. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Are you cuddling and coddling sins? And then you wonder why there's not much going on between you and God relationally. You're like a woman who's swinging around a flaming sword with snake venom dipped on it. Why do you expect God to draw near to you when you are covered in your sins? But there is hope, friend. There is great hope because if we are actively killing our sins and confessing our sins, Solomon told us, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain what? Mercy. You want a little mercy in your life? Want a little of God looking at you and saying, come to me, my son. I forgive you. One of the best ways to kill a sin is to confess a sin. Years ago, an older brother told me, keep your accounts short with God. Keep your accounts short with God. He meant confess your sins regularly. Don't allow your debts against God to pile up higher and higher. Get things right between you and God every day, if not every hour. How can you delight in a person that you are constantly offending? How can you treasure God if you're busy doing lots of things to try and cover up your sins and make yourself appear a certain way to him when he sees through it all? If you're going to delight in God, there has to be a lot of killing going on. Death to self, death to sin. That'll help you a whole lot with the honesty bit. So honesty, death, last word is contact. I will confess that I'm a better listener than talker. You might say, it doesn't look that way, I know you. Uh, If all you know of me is standing up here and talking, I understand why you would feel that way. But what I mean by that is, I find it a lot easier to read my Bible than to pray. I like to listen to God's word, but I'm not so quick to pray as I would like to be. I feel like God's given me grace there and I'm growing there, but it's not all I would love. How about you? Is prayer easier than reading, reading easier than prayer? Both are necessary. Your elders love you. I know that because I hear their prayers for you, and one of the things they pray most consistently for you is that, oh, help that brother open his Bible today to read it, to meet with you, Lord, and to pray. Why do we pray that over and over again for all the members of this church? You know why? Because you cannot delight in God if you're not getting the word in and you're not getting some words out to him. Word and prayer are foundational to delighting in God. An honest woman who's denying herself and killing her sins She can enter into this real conversation with God. She can stay in contact. That's what I mean by contact, staying in contact with God, listening to him from his word, speaking to him with words, with prayer. So first, words from him. Please don't try and convince me that you are serious about delighting in God if you're not reading your Bible. (laughs) They're just... It's an impossible thing. If you think that you're happy in the Lord and you're not reading a Bible, come talk to me because I don't think that's possible. 
Psalm 119, verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You cannot store up what you have not read. The best thing, his word, in the best place, your heart, for the best reason, so you never sin against him. That's what David says. That means you cannot be killing sin if you're not taking in his word and storing up his word in your heart. And if you're not killing sin, we just saw, you can't delight in God. You must read the word. You need to read God's word. Psalm 50, verse 12, David says, um, Well, the Lord speaking through David. The Lord says, you thought the I am was one like yourself. I think the NIV translated, you thought I was just like you. God looks at his people and says, you thought I was just like you. That's a mistake. (laughs) If you think, if if your picture of God is a bigger version of you, (laughs) you, you are like missing it. If your ideas, conception of God are not being framed by God's word, what are they being framed by? Your imagination. (laughs) Have you ever met somebody you know very little, but you know something about them, and you you sort of have this impression of what they're going to be like, and maybe it's not a good impression, and then you meet them, and they're actually quite wonderful, and and it sort of changes. Has this happened to anybody else? Okay, three of us, thanks. Uh, I think it happens to many of us. We sort of think somebody's going to be one way and they turn out to be a different way and go good or bad. Well, how do you expect to delight in a person you don't know? And how can you expect to please him if you don't know what he wants? Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Why would you ever try going through life in the dark on your own, depending on your own feelings, your own preferences, your imagination? Imagine I bought you one of those wicked 20,000 lumen flashlights. Have you seen these things like a giant spotlight thing? And I bought that for you and I gave it to you because you were going on a night hike and you threw it in the back of your truck and then you left it there on purpose when you went on your night hike. Well, life is kind of a night hike, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's sounds over here and there. Do I turn to the left or the right? Do I, I, I don't know, should I go forward, backwards? And, and we got all these things and, and, and people, voices telling us to do this and to do that. Are you trying to navigate your entire life in the dark? Grab the flashlight of his word and, and let God tell you how to live, how to navigate twists and turns and trunks and troughs and traverses and towns and trials and temptations and troubles of this torn up world. He provides the way. God is not mute. He's spoken. And in one sense, he continues to speak through his word. How can you delight in a person you're not listening to? If you're married, try it with your spouse. See how that goes. Stop listening to them and see how the delight increases. This is all irony in case you're like, oh, all right. How can you treasure a person you don't listen to? How can you treasure a person you don't talk to? Listen to this very kind invitation. Psalm 62, verse 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. I think that verse should make you cry. God 
That God, the one who sees and knows all things, that God looks at you and he says, pour out your heart to me. If that's not enough, how about Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18? Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Those are imperatives, which means those are commands. So if the wooing of God's invitation doesn't work for you, may the hammer of God's command work for you. I don't know what you need. You need to be praying. Are you a praying Christian? You're praying for all things. You're praying for God. They're members of this church. Got a church directory? Is it catching dust? Pull it out. Take, take one member a day. Pray for them. You read something in your Bible that morning? Maybe you're, you're reading in the Psalms and you read, maybe you read Psalm 62.8. You say, Lord, help that brother to pour his heart out to you today. This is, this is what it means to be the body of Christ together. Look, I'm trying to be as plain and as simple as I can possibly be here. You exist to delight in God. That's why he made you. That is why you are on the planet. But you can't delight in God if you are being dishonest with God. You can't delight in God if you're not denying yourself and not killing your sins. You can't delight in God if you're not staying in contact with God. Giving him your words in prayer receiving his words from his Bible. So let me ask you something, all right? Let's, let's take all of that now and think about us. Were you busy last week? All right, some of you were busy, some of you were not. If you were not busy, how many hours of the last week did you spend watching stuff scrolling on screens, or some other form of entertainment. Just think about that for a minute. All right, I am not about to attempt to recruit you for a monastery, <laughs> but I would like you to think about three questions. Here they come. Number one, do you think that Satan might be behind some of our busyness. That's number one. Number two, do you think that turning off your devices for one week might do more to fuel your delight in God than almost anything else? Number three, do you think it's at least possible that the world is conspiring against you to keep you dishonest, faking it, hiding your sins, and too distracted to pray? I think it's at least possible that the world is trying to influence you in that direction. If you answered yes or maybe to any one of those three questions, then you should feel like a man who's trapped on the balcony 
of a third-story condominium on fire. You need to get out. And when you do, you will find the Lord right there, ready to catch you. And how you will delight in him. He who gathers up his flock in his arms and carries them close to his heart as he leads them gently along. Brother, sister, let's be people who delight in God for reals. Not just some motto, but who have a real relationship with him and real joy in him to his glory, for the good of one another and the good of the whole world. Let's pray together. Father, when we sang earlier that our hearts would not choose you, that could never be, our hearts would still refuse you unless you had chosen us. Uh, There is a sense where I want to leverage this truth now as I pray for our church family. I want to ask you to send your Holy Spirit to do a cleansing work in our hearts, that all of us who are Christians would find Um, a clear and easy path to whatever repentance you're calling for, whatever it is that would enable us to move forward and to seek you and to be stronger in our relationship with you. I also want to pray for those who are here this day and have no relationship with you through Christ. I do pray that you would um, let the truth that you know and see everything You know everything about their lives, everything they've ever said or done, everything they will say or do. Uh, Let this press upon them. And I pray for these dear friends that they would cry out to you, that they would look to you. Even perhaps this afternoon, just go out for a walk and speak to you in prayer. And then please do a good work, a saving work in each of those hearts, Lord. Do forgive us of all of our sins. Please lead us along in the way you would have us to go. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen.